This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Should schools open this coming fall? That question is on the minds of every school superintendent, charter school operator, teacher, parent, and student. Some places, like the Harvard Graduate School of Education, have actually made the decision not to open the campus at all for the next entire academic year, believe it or not. That announcement has just come out. All courses will be available online only. It's just too dangerous to be open, the school's leadership has decided. But others say that schools should be open this fall. Young people under the age of 20 are the least likely to display symptoms of the coronavirus. They're the least likely to need hospitalization and the least likely to spread it. So what are charter schools deciding? Are they gonna open this fall? And if they do open, how do they plan to teach the children? To discuss these and other issues facing charter schools in the middle of the pandemic, I have with me today Nina Reese, President of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Nina, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me, Paul. So Nina, are charter schools planning to open this fall? Well, as you know, Paul, um, there are about 7,500 charter schools around the country. Each of them are governed by uh, an authorizer and uh, depending on um, the level of autonomy that they have, they have a degree of control over what they, whether they wanna stay closed, whether they wanna open, or if they want to offer some sort of hybrid uh, arrangement for their families. So um, our advice to them has been, first of all, um, you know, be safe, um, make decisions that make the most sense for you and your schools. And finally, though, um, regardless of whether the schools open, there is a fear that the pandemic may strike again and these schools have to be ready to close and offer remote learning. So if there's one um, silver lining in all of this is that it's really forcing the charter school movement to be a little bit more uh, innovative in terms of how they're approaching education and uh, potentially leaning on uh, virtual tools in order to offer education to their students, regardless of whether the student is in school or at home. And that's really the innovation that we need to um, uncover and tackle a little bit more, not just for the sake of COVID, but also long-term, since there are huge advantages to being able to offer education to students, regardless of whether they're in school or in a different location. So we're nearly at the end of three months of school closures in most parts of the United States. And I'm sure that there are many charter schools that have been closed for three months or about that length of time. So how has that experience gone in the charter world? So according to the Center for Reinventing Public Education, um, they did a survey um, uh, early on and they discovered that uh, many of the high-performing charter schools offered some sort of virtual education almost immediately when COVID hit. Um, and we're now doing a survey with Public Impact looking at the rest of the sector to see what the reaction was. It appears as if many of them offered remote learning and then they quickly pivoted to trying to find Chromebooks and other software uh, and hardware in order to make sure their students had connections um, and were able to do schooling at home. But we don't have um, the information on our hand to see what the sector writ large did. Um, the cost of purchasing Chromebooks, of course, is high. 
um, those charters that had resources at their disposal were probably able to make those available faster. Uh, but as a sector that's already receiving about, you know, 25% less in funding compared to traditional schools, uh, these are the types of things that have been discussed uh, by our sector and things that keep us up at night because to the extent we were already behind uh, costs and expenditures like this further take us back. So it's important um, that we use this moment in time to highlight how quickly our uh, community has pivoted to offering online education and how the nimbleness of charter schooling makes it possible for uh, us to make quick uh, corrections and offer um, you know, computers and whatnot to our students. But at the same time, um, the fact that we don't have equitable access to funding is definitely an issue that's front and center for us and something we're advocating for at the federal level. So that's what I was thinking. Is, is the story that charters were nimble and made the adaptation rather quickly, or is it that they really have less of an administrative structure that could gather in the needed resources to move on to online? So I can see some pluses and some minuses for the charter sector as compared Absolutely. to the district Exactly. Sector. And we need more data. That's why we're doing this larger survey looking at single sites since 65% of our sector is led by individuals who are just running one campus. Usually when we talk about charter schools, we talk about the larger networks that are um, that have the bandwidth to do these things faster, uh, but the small providers or the small uh, schools are the ones that uh, we need to be careful with. So I do think it's true though, every single one I've talked to so far, and this is very anecdotal, uh, has told us that they did remote learning. So you can do remote learning by just offering homework packets uh, and leaning on other tools in order to educate students. Um, to do so online though, it's not just also about offering a computer. You have to train your teachers. You have to make sure the courses that you're putting online are uh, you know, presented in a way that's appealing to students. It's actually, you know, this is where the full-time virtual charter schools can teach a lot to the traditional sector because they've been doing this for so long. Um, so, um, so it's you know it's it's actually complicated to keep students engaged. Also requires a, a degree of uh, creativity. Uh, and in most cases, if if you don't have a guardian or parent at home, uh, offering this kind of virtual learning to smaller students is rather challenging. So the short answer is yes. They were nimble, they came up with solutions fast, and they also made decisions around expenditures in the hopes that you know, either philanthropy or government would offer them resources. Um, and we're now gonna see whether with the CARES Act, they will receive their share of funding from the federal government. A lot of them are concerned about the budget crisis that's about to hit many states and uh, the ramifications of that on per pupil expenditures for charters are the uh, is what we're currently worried about so is there anything in the cares act special for charters or is it just got to come out of each state's allocation that they have received and they've got to fight with the district schools to get the the share that they need um so if you are your own local education agency uh you will be technically eligible to receive a portion of the 13 and a half billion that went to states in order to um support k-12 education but if you were 
authorized and chartered by a school district, the school district will receive the money and they will disseminate the funds. Uh, that, there are 16 states where charters are vulnerable, vulnerable right now uh, because we don't know if the districts are gonna share the funding equitably. And the other reason to be concerned about it is usually with these allocations, there is a specific language that mandates the money be spent on low-income students, for instance. In this case, because Congress wanted to disseminate the funds quickly, um, they didn't attach any strings. They basically made, made it so that the districts would get the funds and disseminate it or allocate it to where they thought the need was, was greatest. So school district officials right now have a huge degree of autonomy um, to, to allocate the funds where they see fit. And that's, that's where some of our concerns uh, are coming from. And I guess you won't really know until things unfold throughout the course of the coming year. Exactly. So how about future funding? Is there any uh, effort being made by the charter sector to see whether or not additional funds might be made available? As the federal government thinks about doing the next round, there's always talk about the next round, whether or not it's actually going to make it through Congress is unclear, but will there be anything in that package for charters? Yes, so there are discussions right now underway uh, for another um, relief slash recovery package. Uh, the House Heroes Bill um, passed a week or so ago, and uh, of course the Senate dismissed that bill because the price point for it was really high. Um, having said that, even though the price point was high, uh, the amount of money allocated for K-12 education uh, wasn't as high as we had hoped. Um, so the, the, this bill is now in the Senate or there's gonna be legislation out of the Senate uh, and the discussions around funding for uh, education are definitely on the table. Uh, it appears as if the Senate is open to some sort of discussion around offering um, uh, online learning resources to states. They don't, you know, it's, Republicans don't like the E-rate program, but they are aware of the need for more computers and for measures to better connect students to the internet. So that's where some of the coalition building has taken place. Um, so, but it remains to be seen how receptive um, Senate Republicans are since the Senate is led by Republicans uh, to these huge expenditures, um, you know, at a time where um, states are suffering, whether they'll be open to attaching strings. And so to your question about future safeguards for charter schools, we definitely believe that if there is gonna be more funding, there should be more explicit language uh, ensuring that charters get their fair share of funding. Uh, and more importantly, that um, states or school districts don't use a fiscal impact uh, as an excuse to not renew a charter, which is the incident that just happened in upstate New York and Buffalo with a high performing network that didn't get reauthorized because the school district worried about its financial um, um, situation or the impact of more students going to a charter school as a result of COVID. So now tell me about the story that emerged in Pennsylvania where it was alleged that the virtual school was shut down by the state, that virtual charter was shut down because all the other schools were shut down. So they had to be shut down too, even though everybody else was going online, but they couldn't continue online. Was that, was that story accurate or was that one of these false facts that travels around out there? Um, I'm not familiar with the 
particular story you have um, you cited, but in, uh, in other states like Oregon, um, there definitely um, was um, an effort, and in fact, uh, you know, a push to not allow for uh, schools to be open if they couldn't serve students uh, with disabilities equitably. Uh, which is a shame because those virtual schools that have been in operation in the chartering space for a long time, if they have learned anything, it's the it's the idea that they have to be open and 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 be able to serve the needs of special needs students. So when I was talking about some lessons, this is where there is expertise in how to offer um, uh, this kind of coursework to special needs students. So yes. Um, there, in those places where districts decided they were going to shut everything down because they couldn't adhere to the rules and regulations of the ADA and IDEA, or were waiting for federal guidance to adhere to those rules, um, all schools were closed and charters as a result were also um, uh, were closed regardless of whether they were able to offer the services. So has that, but that was immediately, but you think thing, people have worked their way around that and that it appears, yes, the past. Uh, it appears so. Um, and again, uh, the Center for Reinventing Public Education is tracking a lot of these um, on, uh, on a database so we can double check, but I believe that uh, most districts are doing something. Well, of course, the school year is over, um, but um, it's unfortunate that this even happened, to be honest. And um, I think because the department came up with guidance that clarified how you could offer these services without running afoul of IDEA uh, was, was helpful. Uh, but as you know, the school um, uh, administrators want greater flexibility uh, from IDEA, which uh, you know is a cause for concern for the special ed uh, lobbying organizations who worry that giving that kind of broad authority to school district officials could be damaging uh, to students, to so, students with disabilities. Yeah, well, shifting to the fall. So if schools do open this fall, how are they going to open? Are they going to have masks? Are they going to have social distancing? Uh, and if so, how in the heck can you actually run a school? In, in you know remotely effective way if you're in all these restrictions are imposed upon your operation um, well we have a, a guide that we're about to release on uh, how to safely reopen your school again this is a country that has 15,000 school districts so 15,000 different ways of doing this and as you know a number of states um, like Montana and Wyoming that were ahead of reopening their, you know, their, their, their communities are probably going to be in a different place compared to some of the schools in the Northeast. So depending on the gravity of, of this um, pandemic on your state, I think every state is going to have a different set of rules and districts could potentially have different um, measures in place. So uh, we don't have like a one-size-fits-all model. Uh, and um, I do agree with you that um, students are less um, prone to getting COVID. I think the danger is with the teachers and with the fact that as students, they could catch it and carry COVID, but not show any symptoms. So, um, so it remains to be seen how schools take precautions. In looking at the international uh, community, though, 
Um, there are some examples of things that countries like South Korea and Singapore have put in place that could be measures a school could put in place, for instance, checking the temperature of the student before they walk into school. Uh, and of course, cleaning your space thoroughly um, are just a couple of things that, I'm, that a lot of schools have already put in place and will probably consider. Those are not as, um, I mean, those are easy things to put in place, so to speak. But uh, the rest of it around masks, uh, I do think that that's going to depend on um, you know, what school districts and states do and to some extent, again, what, whether a, uh, an actual school wants to take additional precautions on top of what's been mandated. So there's a story just out of uh, the University of London College that has been doing models on the spread of coronavirus, which uh, says there's almost no effect of opening a school on the contagion effect. Uh, it's about the least effective measure that you can take if you really want to reduce the rapidity with which the virus spreads, because not only do kids not show the symptom, but they don't even they don't spread the disease. So in Sweden, where they've had schools open all spring, there's been only one case of a teacher who died, and that teacher got that virus not in school but in a different setting. So really the evidence that the schools are a serious problem for spreading the disease is one that made sense at the beginning, but as the data comes flooding in, does it still make any sense? Well, I, I think, you know, studies like that are going to be important in um, setting the stage for the fall and the future. Um, I do think it's very important to have some sort of solution uh, to what you do with students in the fall if you are interested in um, reopening the economy and sending their parents back to work. Um, so those who have parents who can afford to stay home um, are, are stretched right now because homeschooling your child while you're working is difficult. And um, so to some extent that the whole question of reopening schools safely uh, is tied to measures around um, reopening the economy and sending workers back to work, even if, again, even if there are going to be measures to limit um, how many people can gather in one space, you know, you're going to need more people who are able to leave their children with a caregiver without having to worry about uh, the spread of the disease. So hopefully that study um, is uh, one of many studies that will confirm that students are not at risk of spreading COVID and uh, we can um, definitively um, tell everyone that it's safe to open schools. I think a lot of people are concerned that we just don't know enough about this since it's been kind of an evolving uh, pandemic. And um, yeah, but I'm concerned that people aren't paying much attention to the data as it's starting to come in, and that what what they thought initially might be a possibility, you know, there's much less evidence to support that thinking than there is talk about it as something that we need to worry about. You're correct, Paul. I, I do think also because of social media, uh, there's um, people are confused about what's fact and what needs to still be studied a little bit more. So some of the, um, you know, early warnings or things that government officials shared, which were then found um, to be inaccurate, um, have given 
the general public a sense that no one knows what this is and how it spreads. So, um, so I think that that's kind of feeding into this. There is a sense that um, you know no one knows what's going on, and we 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 should just better be safe than sorry, so to speak. But um, I mean, that's why it's dangerous to some extent when you're putting too many facts out or where public officials are offering information that they have to redact afterwards. Well, let me ask you about the long term uh, in conclusion. What do you think will be the long term impact on charter schools? Do you think more and more parents are going to say, I'm not satisfied with the schools that are being assigned to my child or my child is being assigned to go to and I want a choice? Um, or do you think that this is going to cripple the charter sector because of the financial problems that are emerging? Well, before, before I answer that question, let me just give you a couple of examples of some of the things our sector has done really effectively. I should have said this at the top of the hour. So if you look at New Orleans, which is an all charter district and the response of that school district, that definitely points us in a certain direction in terms of the importance of having a system of schools uh, and a nimble central office serving it rather than a large bureaucracy that's gonna you know put everything or bring everything to a screeching halt until given more direction so New Orleans is a great example of what happens when every school has the autonomy to manage its school by itself success Academy as you well know put all of their course content online they've closed their school ahead of schedule and um, so it's a great example of what chartering can do and in this instance this information is available to everyone to, to tap into any school can look at what success has put up and benefit from it um, and then other examples like rocket ship um, based in san jose but with schools around the country they um, have a care core that's calling families every day to see if they have any questions not just about schooling but other needs that can range from you know food and supplies and whatnot. So again, the, the, the spirit that the charter school leaders bring to the table is really definitely something to tap into. And I think, um, you know, as we learn more about what they've done, we can try to kind of disseminate this information more broadly to the traditional space and to our other um, peers in the chartering space. In terms of the impact, when you look at, there's been a bunch of survey work done by different organizations it does appear that there is a greater interest in homeschooling and uh, a lot of organizations like the Powerful Parent Network um, have also raised this question of, you know, I ultimately, I need to be comfortable with whether my school can reopen and I should have more of a say about how this happens. So I don't know what all of this is gonna lead into, but I do think there is in some communities probably more of a tendency to want to send your child to a school that has, um, you know, a hybrid component or better better uh, ways to dealing with these types of crises uh, than the traditional system in some instances. In terms of the impact of the budgets on chartering, um, and that's a great question. I, I, we are definitely getting ready um, to advocate uh, at the state level. Uh, for more funding and for equitable funding at least. And um, we think that the, this is a moment where we should be having greater conversations with school districts uh, about co-location, facilities access and whatnot. 
Um, but in those instances where the district has already decided that charters are the enemy, those discussions are going to be much more difficult to have. So, um, yeah, we're, we're concerned, but I also think there are some bright spots in some places where the district officials are understanding the, the benefits of have or having options within, within the public system. Well, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange, Nina. It's been great chatting with you about how charters are responding to this pandemic that is threatening our schools and our country in so many different ways. So thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much, Paul. I have been speaking with Nina Reese, the president of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast every Monday at noon on Education Next. Thank you for joining me.